Hi, good afternoon. My name is Greg Lois. Uh, standing to my left, your right, is Christian Cison. Hi, everybody. Those are our lovely faces for you, <laughs> just in case you don't get tired of the moving presentation here. Uh, today, what we're going to do is give you an overview of the changes to the permanency guidelines that are in draft form right now. So we'll go over the changes. Uh, we'll tell you if they're perspective or retrospective. How will they change our uh, handling of a file and whether or not it's good or bad? Uh, and then, as you know, we'll do a Q&A. Uh, if anyone has seen our webinars before, this screen is very familiar to you. Uh, ask a question live. We'll get it at the end. And as ever, however much time we have, we'll answer those questions. Now, I believe uh, a lot of people did not uh, sign up in time for the webinar. Uh, we reached Or the they got kicked limit. out because we hit our max. So. There is a 3 o'clock session. If anybody in your office is telling you, hey, I just got kicked out of this thing, uh, there's a 3 o'clock session they can jump into as well. I I'm standing here. I got the computer right in front of me. So as questions come in, we can see the questions pop up. And we'll try to answer all of your questions at the end. But please type them along as we go. Uh, I'm going to take the first very brief topic. Just there are some changes to the way independent medical evaluations are going to be conducted and how those reports are going to be submitted to the board. Uh, this is sort of ancillary or just a little bit of table setting for our discussion about how scheduled loss of use uh, uh, awards are going to be calculated. Uh, over this next year, beginning January 1, 2018, the board is going to be reviewing the entire IME process with potentially making some process changes in 2019, and that's by statutory direction. Uh, currently, uh, IMEs, as they're going to go forward under these new guidelines, are going to require the claimant to complete a scheduled loss of use dash one form. This is a new form that the board is issuing. Uh, the claimant must complete the form and sign it. Now they can complete the form in their attorney's office before they go to the IME evaluation. Yeah, uh, I'm sure with the assistance <laughs> and coaching of their attorney, but it must be brought and completely filled out. Uh, interestingly, they also have to bring the same scheduled loss of use dash one form to their own treating physician uh, at who is supposed to review those responses. Now, uh, the regulations have been changed as well as the statute, and the regulations state that the claimant must cooperate with our IME. We've seen in the last year and a half or so uh, a lot of lack of cooperation from the claimants in evaluations. Borderline no cooperation. Borderline no cooperation, but also recently, and there's now services where uh, claimants are showing up with their own videographer who's going to video sure. the entire IME sure. evaluation, uh, and they've been quite disruptive. Uh, the new guidelines, or sorry, the new regulation states uh, that they've got to cooperate and answer uh, the questionnaires that they're being provided with. Obviously, claimants' counsel do not like the idea of their own uh, client filling out any kind of questionnaires and then signing their name to it because that could be the basis for a fraud defense later on in the case if they materially misrepresent their condition or their treatment or any of their priors. Um, the schedule loss of use examination uh, rules, these are the regulations again, are changing to allow out-of-state physicians without board authorization to perform schedule loss of use evaluations. And that's very useful for us uh, when we have got claimants who are maybe retired, maybe they live in Florida, and it can be sometimes difficult to get that Florida evaluator to give us a report. They still have to provide our IME report or C-4.3 report 
on a board-issued form, but they're relatively straightforward forms to complete, uh, and they are supposed to consider our current guidelines when they produce these evaluations. So uh, that's a little bit about how the independent medical evaluations are changing. Uh, we are going to be doing training just on IME evaluations on October 16th in New York and on October 23 in New Jersey, and in fact we're going to have a pain management physician, Dr. Jennifer Yano, with us for our webinar on October 23rd, so please join us for that. Okay, let's move into scheduled loss of guidelines. So scheduled loss of use guidelines, uh, this came out, came about with a new bill being passed uh, in April. Mm -hmm. uh, we have uh, a source right here for you, but the source is really us, right? Yeah. Okay, so current guidelines is something that you're all familiar with by now. They came out in 2012, uh, and a lot of it dealt with loss of range of motion only, right? Mm -hmm. So you had mm -hmm. a specific type of injury subject to special considerations. You have someone who probably doesn't use a goniometer at all, and just saying, based on my 50 years of experience, he had 45 degrees right. loss of range Palpation. of motion. Yeah. And then, boom, 40% for a guy who's still working, same job, no reduced earnings, and you have a big award. Uh, these are uh, some of the examples of some of the gu uh, guideline pages that talk about that. Uh, it has given us problems in the past. I know that there were, was a study that came out recently that showed about $900 million were being paid out to claimants who didn't lose more than two weeks of time. Is that right. correct? That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Now, ELWIC, that's not going to change, right? We still have these uh, crazy severity ranking tables that really no doctor has been able to figure out perfectly. <laughs> uh, so that's going to still be a, a morass and, and a problem that we will have to deal with on an ongoing basis. Uh, but what's interesting about ELWIC is the draft guidelines now allow for certain schedulable injuries to now move into LWEC. So, for mm -hmm. example, x-ray evidence of progressive degenerative arthritis, uh, which, I mean, everybody is going to have, now all of a sudden becomes an LWEC, bad thing. Uh, minimal or no improvement from the date of accident that's documented, that can go from an SNLU to an LWEC. So it's still and the big important. one, uh, pain that doesn't resolve. Right, of course. So it's, it's still important to know exactly when an LWEC or an SLU is available for your case. Mm. So uh, the disability duration guidelines, we just told you all, they are in draft status. Uh, the board will have a meeting to either adopt this draft or emergency guidelines, and they're effective January 1st, 2018. Uh, we have heard uh, from judges and other practitioners that SLU cases that are currently before the board now are probably going to be pushed off until uh, the new year, uh, likely because of these, uh, this timeline here. Judges don't want to make a decision based on the old guidelines that they think will be susceptible to appeal. Sure, uh, and it actually could be a good reason for you guys to certainly settle those cases. Uh, bring a number, uh, extract a number from the other side, get those cases closed out under the auspice of the fact that, hey, this, this case is going to remain open for at least three more months. And one other thing, as we're going to go through this example, we're going to go through sort of a theoretical how a scheduled loss of use is evaluated under the new guidelines, or the draft guidelines, we should say. And then we're going to do a practical, and we're going to talk about a specific injury type and what the actual dollar exposures would be under the old guidelines and the new guidelines. And you'll see in the example that we're going to give today, it's going to be favorable to the employer and carrier, right. which means, uh, and believe me, our adversaries are very well aware that the new scheduled loss of use guidelines may be favorable to the employers. So that may provide leverage right now to get to some sort of resolution in your case, whether that be a Section 32 or a STIP, earlier 
than maybe they would have been amenable to. That's exactly right. So as we said before, uh, these new guidelines are going to apply to cases that are currently open, but as long as the award is made after January 1st, 2018, and it just changes how the impairments are determined. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the actual calculation of weeks doesn't change, right, Greg? Because you still have 312 weeks for an arm, you take a percentage of that, uh, 288 for a leg, same thing. You have a chart of weeks, the percentage, you calculate the amount of weeks with the benefit rate. Yep. It's just based on how you're calculating the amount of weeks now is what's changed. That's right. It hasn't changed since 1911. Right. And this chart actually shows uh, how old it is because it's just not cool and fun to look at. <laughs> okay. So uh, this is basically our interpretation of the new draft guidelines. Uh, this isn't a board equation here, but this is kind of how we see it. Uh, you'll start off with a categorical determination of the diagnosis or injury. You'll move across the timeline to get to the final schedule loss of use award. So we'll go through each one right now. Yeah, it's important to understand that this is our simplification. This is found nowhere in the draft guidelines. Uh, we're trying to reduce this to a very concrete, simple, straightforward process uh, so that as we discuss this today, we can all sort of stay together as we move from one. I mean, earlier we were talking, talking about it as buckets, really, right. you know, move from one bucket to the other, one consideration to the next. And we just laid it out from left to right as an equation because these are all of the factors uh, that the evaluating uh, physician needs to walk through. And then the judge, of course, adds on their little piece called loss of earning power. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second yeah, right. to end up with what the SLU award is or the potential exposure is. Okay, so as we said, step one is the categorical determination, right? So we have A, B, and C that will determine the range, which essentially gives a floor and a ceiling for a particular type of injury. Mm -hmm. Now, it can be good in the sense that an injury that might have seen as a higher SLU prior to these draft guidelines gets a lower floor, but it could also be bad where you have a higher categorical injury get a high floor in B and C. So. That's the first thing we're going to do. We're going to find out what the diagnoses are and put them into a category. Right. And just to be quite clear before we move on, we're not talking about fingers and wrist injuries in today's presentation. Uh, the board has sort of pulled finger and wrist injuries into its own sure. uh, sort of categorization. And in my opinion, it's going to result in higher uh, SLUs for fingers and wrists and hands. Again, that might be okay when you think about the impact on someone's working ability uh, from a significant hand injury, but really today we're not going to talk about fingers and wrists. Uh, we're going to really be talking about everything else that's feet, ankles, knees, hips, shoulders, shoulders. elbows. Right. So then we get to range of motion. Uh, the essential tests for doing this with a goniometer uh, is going to be the same. Uh, essentially, you start from a resting position and then calculate how much of a loss you have. I think one thing that's very interesting about this is we always need to determine whether or not that person's unaffected uh, limb is being compared to the one that is effective as opposed to what normally the guidelines had as a loss mm -hmm. uh, or a normal starting point. So the, measure, the measurement from a specific resting point should be relative to that particular claimant, and I think that's beneficial for some of our more older employees uh, who have a lower baseline. And what's great is it does actually give, give those resting points. So it'll say arm in the uh, prone position. It'll give the positions that they're supposed to perform the test from. And the idea of this is that two different physicians performing the same test they should be should reproducing be results, we, we would we hope. Know, we know that they don't now, right. 
But uh, that's the goal by the with these uh, new range of motion right. requirements to try and get right. them closer. They actually say right. you have to test it three times, and hopefully, the degree measurements are within 10 degrees of each other. Uh, that's really the goal of these uh, guidelines in this in this aspect. Mm -hmm. So once you get to after after range of motion, you get to strength. Uh, it's an observational component. This is kind of where it hurts us a little bit because. There's no specific test equipment. Uh, there's that's described. Right now, for range of motion, they don't say you have to use a goniometer, but it says it's recommended. Right. Right. Uh, for strength, nothing's even recommended. Uh, no grip strength dynamometers. They certainly don't use the word functional capacity evaluation, which I would have loved to have seen. Uh, it would have been nice for them to re require it, but we can still do that, right? Mm -hmm. We can mm -hmm. still get the FCEs. Uh, they actually might be a more credible barometer of strength if you were to. Uh, make that determination for your case. But uh, again, observation being the biggest test of measurement is problematic because it entails a lot of subjective components. Right, and we would hope for, although the, the uh, guidelines suggest contralateral measurements, uh, and particularly with strength, measuring things like muscle wasting or atrophy, and those to me feel relatively objective, but I was hoping for you know something that's really recommending a specific testing equipment Right, and then also including things like distraction testing, Waddell testing, you know, something to add a credibility element into the strength um, uh, evaluation. The strength evaluation that's been provided from the board really, to me, looks quite observational. Right, if you and you can actually see it here, uh, the table from zero to five. You can start out with a normal strength and no deficit. Uh, you get zero points from it, all the way down to the end where you have essentially paralysis of the limb and mm -hmm. you know you'd get five points. Uh, I, it, it is kind of uh, observational. You can see that there's a lot of uh, subjective components here, able or unable to overcome gravity, mm -hmm. uh, which isn't uh, usually the best indicator of, of any kind of objective test. But the good thing is you're only adding an additional five points for this test. Right? In total. In total right. for strength. Right. And, and the term points are completely uh, congruent or interchangeable with the term percentage. So one point for lack of active movement uh, would translate to one additional percentage of scheduled loss of use disability, which that's is important a, that's to know. That's a good point, good point. Step four is, is pain, uh, which you know <laughs> is, is fake and just not apparent in most cases. Uh, but the problem is here, I guess, you know, we're adding again onto something. This is probably uh, a, a bad uh, adoption of the guidelines for employers and carriers, but right. let's keep this in consideration. You have to have a loss in range of motion and strength first to get to the pain uh, part of the bucket, and the pain has to be documented from the beginning of the claim to the end. So make sure that you get these reports that you're actually going back in time and making sure that that pain has been documented because you can imagine a claimant who has been pain-free working the same job without reduced earnings, SLU1 form comes, I'm in, I'm in so much pain. Right. So right. Uh, again, they say it's not supposed to be based on subjective reporting. You know, my favorite part of the guidelines is actually when the board says, the workers' compensation law does not provide for pain and suffering, unless Comma. it does. <laughs> and here's where it does. And right. so it, it is bizarre. Again, there is a listing of what gets how many points, and we're going to be spending most of our time and attention, I think, on our cross-examinations and defending these cases on zeros and ones. Uh, what kind of pain occasionally influences the ability to perform the job that would uh, result in a one-point 
uh, disability. And I think almost every claimant is going to claim that. You know, I, from time to time, I take it a leave. From time to time, I feel more pain. Right. From time to time, I feel more tired. That's fair, and I, I can see a lot of one points being added. Uh, the other um, uh, additional points, so for things that actually require job modifications or uh, interferes with the ability to do the regular job or even a modified job, uh, that's going to be ripe grounds for cross-examination where the uh, evaluating physician, and I'm imagining the claimant's chosen evaluating physician, which may be the treating doctor, who's just adopting wholesale the claimant's statements that, oh, I can't do my same job or I can't move as fast. Well, this is where we're going to want to have this person's uh, work records, personnel file, so we can start saying, well, really, uh, they're working the same hours, maybe more hours, maybe they're same working overtime, duties. same job duties, maybe they got a raise, they're doing more than they were doing perhaps uh, pre-loss, uh, and so we'll be able to refute that. Again, I see a lot of zeros and ones coming down the pike on the pain evaluation uh, scale. The next is special considerations. Uh, this actually uh, hasn't really changed from the, the prior guidelines. Essentially, although some of them may actually be different, uh, it, the rule is still the same. Essentially, when you have a particular instance of one of these things, again, this is not all of it, just uh, an example, you will get the added percentage or point total uh, onto your uh, schedule loss of use award. Uh, so there's really nothing to add in there other than the fact that certain ones have been taken out and others have been added in. Correct. If it's particular for your case, we can certainly talk about that. Uh, but now, oh, to my favorite, loss mm. of earning power. Mm -mm. Okay, so this is probably the, I guess, the most odd part of the guidelines from my end. Uh, the judge has the discretion to add an additional value of 15% to your schedule loss of use award. And I just want to put that in concrete numbers in a worst case scenario. Take an arm that has a maximum of 312 weeks. 15% of that is 46.8 weeks. Multiply that by a maximum benefit rate of $870.61. And you're talking about the discretion of the judge to add over $40,000 to your claim when without any reason. Right, right. And, the, no... and the danger here is going to be uh, based on the claimant's own statements uh, and subjective statements we would expect and uh, a sympathetic judge who's sitting there and saying well this person has a bad injury and maybe they don't have the most wonderful set of vocational skills or training or diplomas or English skills I'll throw an additional 15 percent on. So this is one where again uh, we are going to want to be extraordinarily careful about fighting these sort of determinations and uh, right now, uh, as, we'll, as we'll talk about it, the definition is very loosey-goosey. The definition simply says in the draft guidelines, it's not loss of wage earning capacity, so it's not Elwick. It also says it's, quote, not wage earning capacity. Well, that's wonderful. That's right. classic so board speak. It's not, it's not, but you haven't told me what it is. Right. And right. we think this is sympathy money that we're, they're going to throw onto top of a case uh, for the claimant who says, you know, my injury is quite disabling, but it's, it's not so disabling I can never work again, comma, here's an extra 15%. Right. And this is when we're going to want to push back on it. And again, this is going to be an area where a personnel file and job records uh, showing what they're actually doing is going to be very useful in us in being able to defend against this loss of uh, earning power being topped into a case. Right. I think it does actually give us a good incentive to check in with the employer, check in with the supervisor, uh, you know, find out how these people are doing after they're returning to work. Because mm -hmm. these are the problematic cases that we want to make sure bring the exposure down to a reasonable amount. Mm. And after the end of our little timeline here, uh, we find that we have an SLU award, right? Nothing else changes in terms of appeals. You can still appeal an SLU award. Obviously, we 
expect to do so as the board gets comfortable in doing this and probably screws some things up. Uh, but uh, it also doesn't prevent you from uh, entering into a STIP or a full and final 32, which we also talked about. Uh, it is a good opportunity for us to kind of uh, amicably resolve these cases Absolutely. and get these out of adjudication when the, I guess, the discretion or the rules are not really clear. Yeah, and just to build on that, the uh, Workers' Compensation Alliance, which is a organization of claimants attorneys that's organized for lobbying purposes, the FLCIO, have all issued statements complaining that this new schedule loss of use uh, uh, formulas may, re may result in reduced awards to claimants. Great. This is wonderful, Jeopardy. This is a wonderful opportunity to try to close up some of these SLU cases as quickly as possible uh, while everybody's sort of unsure about how the a, final guidelines are going to be implemented, and then what they're going to look like. So let's walk through a practical example. And this example was chosen for a very specific reason. And the specific reason is that one of the uh, impetuses behind the reform, uh, this uh, change that occurred in April of 2017, is the fact that the state itself is getting killed with scheduled loss of uses. You know, we hear it from our clients all the time. Many of our clients are self-insured employers, sure. and one of the things that they're screaming and yelling about has been this massive explosion in scheduled loss of uses uh, since the reforms. And what's happened is, well, there's people are still getting giant awards for relatively small or minor injuries, but the, uh, the rates have all doubled since the reforms were implemented right. in 2007. Right. And they'll so continue I, to go up. Yeah, at that time, the maximum rate was $400 a week. Well, now it's $870 per week, which means that your average award more than doubled in 10 years. So this has hit everybody. But you know who else it hit? It hit the state. And in 2015, in the last year for, what, for which uh, statistics are available, the state paid $1.3 billion in scheduled loss of use, and $900 million of that $1.3 billion, so over 75% of it, was for claimants who lost less than two weeks of work. So think about that. $900 million in benefits issued to people who had relatively minor losses, minor lost time, may have been injuries, but I mean that certainly to me indicates a quick recovery and back to work in two weeks. So this is really the impetus behind uh, the statute changing because the state's bankrupting itself just like it has already attacked and destroyed all of its employers or self-insured employers anyway and uh, carriers and premiums, but now the state's feeling that pinch as well. So that's one of the impetus. So we chose an example and here's our example injury a right leg meniscal tear, arthroscopically repaired. Uh, we didn't choose a full meniscal tear, just a partial meniscal tear, arthroscopically repaired, with a resultant 15 degree loss of range of motion. And this is a fairly common result from an meniscal repair, a situation where the person has more difficulty squatting on that knee all the way down to the 120th, uh, the, the final closure of the uh, full range of motion of the knee and a mild weakness, and we would expect someone with this injury to have uh, mild difficulty, very mild difficulty arising from a squatting position. Uh, for the purpose of our example, we're choosing that 75th percentile employee who only lost two weeks of lost time uh, with this meniscal repair. Under the current guidelines, uh, we're just using sort of back of the envelope here. We're saying that this is a scheduled loss of use just based on the loss of range of motion alone of about 25% of the statutory leg. And that's really just based on the loss of range of motion. Right. And I think that it's a good example to compare from the prior guidelines because think about how we just talked about it. A meniscal tear is one of the more benign tears that you can have. Uh, 
you can recover, come back to work after two weeks, and to have it result in saying that you've lost a quarter of the use of your leg is a little bit too high. Uh, Defies we'll, reason, sure. We'll see how uh, the new guidelines would attack this type of example. So first one, categorical uh, determination. A meniscal tear is in the A range. You can see it right here. Um, you can actually also see for the, the leg and the knee, some of the more categorical uh, determinations of B and C are the, the higher range, the more severe injuries. So I, I do like the that there has been a more obvious delineation of mild to severe injuries. Mm -hmm. But for our example, we have a meniscal tear in category A. So that's going to start with a zero floor and a 30 um, ceiling subject to special considerations and loss of earning power. The next uh, step is for range of motion loss. We said that it was a 15 degree range of motion loss. So we're going to add a point or a percentage to that. Right now we're at one. Right, and just to, to put that into some sharp relief, 15% uh, the loss of range of motion of the knee under the old guidelines by itself uh, was schedulable for approximately 20 to 25% of the statutory leg. So that's a massive change. Now that's only 1% scheduled loss of use for that same loss of range of motion. Strength, again, uh, we talked about how that was next in the uh, our uh, timeline. Uh, we want to make sure that although there is no particular uh, objective testing, it's really an observational thing, uh, there is some mild weakness that we put in our example. So we're going to say, okay, one point for you, sir or ma'am. Uh, strength testing is our next one. We'll go to pain. Now, we did find some range of motion loss, so pain is applicable to this scenario. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but again, mm -hmm. it's really benef It's really dependent on what the claimant's going to uh, allege here and how we can attack that. Um, for us, we essentially said because if he's only losing two time two weeks from work, then he's only going to occasionally influence his ability to perform the job. Yeah. Right. And, so, and again, that's something that would be really subject to cross-examination and certainly it's on the scheduled loss of use form and absolutely I would though anticipate someone saying yeah I had the, the, the tear you know it aches from time to time upon heavy work so right. I we would expect our evaluator to find maybe one point for that. Right and, and actually if you look at the next level for two points a require, requiring of the modification of the job function so that's something that's very concrete if he's actually doing the same stuff right you can we, and we rarely see that attack. so yeah, we think a one, unless, you know, for the purpose of this argument. Right. Special considerations for the knee, we'd have possible instability for 5% uh, and a recurrent patella dislocation with or without surgery for 15 just, to 30%. Just unlikely in today's right. modern arthroscopic procedure. especially for a meniscal tear as well. Um, loss of earning power, again, you know, uh, it really depends. We're really not uh, seeing these yet because the guidelines are in draft format, but... But we think with only two weeks of lost time, we'd have a very strong argument disputing that there's any loss right. of earning power. Right. This is probably more in place for the people who are still out of work, mm -hmm. right? If you have someone that is returning to work for the same uh, wages, then it's they're going to be hard-pressed to actually have a judge increase mm -hmm. the award by that zero to 50, by that one to fifteen percent. Uh, so here we uh, have the final award. We have our evaluator finding 10%. Uh, then you add the range of motion, strength, pain, and we get to 13%. We compare that to the old guidelines. You can see that the money is very, very different uh, compared for the same exact injury. It's, a, it's approximately half in our example. And of course, 
We did cherry pick an example to sort of right. fit that big average number of scheduled loss of uses that are really people with very minimal lost time from work and relatively good recoveries. Really this is going to affect those type of employments and employers where they have these uh, employees that sort of string along a lot of SLUs. You know, yeah. the, every three years the police officer with another sprain strain that turns into an SLU, the every three or four years a delivery person or over the road truck driver who uh, starts to string together a lot of little awards over time. This is really going to help us uh, attack and affect that. And, and that's one, I think, positive outcome of these new schedule loss of use uh, guidelines. If they're implemented the way they're drafted, I think we could see some very routine injuries go down in terms of their overall awards. Right. Well, that does it for uh, our presentation and webinar here today. Um, uh, if you have any questions, we're going to take a look at them now. All right, so I'm going to the computer. Uh, i got to scroll down. Give me a sec. Okay. I see Michelle. So we can presume the high probability for appeal on the issue of loss of earning power. Yeah, I think particularly in the beginning <laughs> because no one's going to know in the beginning uh, sort of what that um, – math is going to be or and it does seem quite subjective and it does seem quite discretionary discretionary to us right now as to how the judge is going to evaluate it. I can tell you from uh, sort of our long-term experience uh, I think it comes to sympathy uh, how sympathetic that judge is going to be to that particular claimant um, how what they really believe that impact is going to be if any and if the other factors apply. I also think too that uh, there might not even be any down, downgrade or, or, or recourse other than to appeal for some of these determinations anyway, you'll have no real reason not to do so and see if a board panel will actually uh, render a decision in your favor. So it might be uh, reasonable to appeal from either side, which can clog a, a caseload for, for a claims adjuster pers uh, perspective, but it does also give us the opportunity to, hey, go to the other side and let's let's close this one out and not tie this one up in litigation for a long time. Mm -hmm. All right, so I've been scrolling down over here and I don't see any other questions. So I think that wraps it up for us on the new draft guidelines, certainly as we develop more information and as the comment period ends on October 25, uh, we'll be reporting in and checking in via newsletter with everybody as to what's going on. Now next month, or sorry, this month, our next webinar uh, is going to be all on uh, independent medical evaluations. That's October 16th. That's in New York. And then our New Jersey webinar on October 23, we will actually be joined by a pain management physician to talk about pain management IMAs. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us today. On behalf of myself and Christian Cisan, uh, we appreciate you attending these webinars, and we appreciate your interesting questions. Please uh, feel free to email us with any of your questions that you have after this webinar, and we'll try to get back to you as soon as we can. Thanks, everybody. Have Defend a great day. Day one.